Well, the decorations have all been put away. The parties have all been attended. Most of the baked goodies have been eaten. And the credit card bills have started rolling in. The culture's way of celebrating Christmas has come and gone. And yet, as a church, we continue to revel in the mystery of what God did in sending Jesus to us. And so this morning, even though we have moved on to January, we continue in our study and exploration of this great mystery. And I would invite you, therefore, to join me in a familiar passage of Scripture as found in Matthew's Gospel, The second chapter, we'll read together verses 1 through 12, as we read about the visit of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Well, to set the stage for a moment this morning, I want you to imagine two men who live in close proximity to one another. One is the President of the United States. Obviously, he lives in the White House and he works in the Oval Office. The other is a homeless man who sleeps in a cardboard box on Pennsylvania Avenue directly across from the White House lawn. 
Now, in terms of real estate, these two are separated by what? A few hundred yards, maybe? But in terms of the lives they lead, they might as well come from different worlds. One is at the pinnacle of human power. One is the very image of destitution and poverty. Now, that may be an extreme contrast, but if we can get that in our minds, it might help us to gain some fresh perspective on a passage of Scripture that is very familiar, but frankly, probably not very often well understood. The story that we are told in Matthew chapter 2 is the tale of two cities. Now, in terms of real estate, the two are separated by less than six miles. Some of you drove further than that to be here for worship today. And if you were to travel to modern-day Israel and take a bus trip from downtown Jerusalem to the outer edges of Bethlehem, except for having to pass through the security checkpoint at the West Bank, you would hardly know where one city ends and the other begins. But in Jesus' day, in terms of the kinds of lives they led, those two cities might have well has been worlds apart from each other. On the one hand, you've got Jerusalem, which was the center of Israel's political and spiritual world. Jerusalem was the capital city. It was the place where King David, centuries earlier, had finally succeeded in unifying Israel into one priestly kingdom. Therefore, Jerusalem was the location of the king's palace. But most importantly, Jerusalem was the location of the temple, which was the only place where sacrifices and true worship could be offered. So Jerusalem in many ways was more than just a physical city. Jerusalem was the personification, the embodiment of all of Israel's hopes and dreams. Everything that Israel believed to be true about itself was localized in the city of Jerusalem. It was a city of great strategic importance, which is reflected in the fact that today, centuries and even millennia later, people are still fighting over it. On the other hand, you've got Bethlehem, which was, well, nothing. Just a wide spot in the road, you might say, a place of no consequence. Now, Bethlehem was the ancestral home of King David, but apart from whatever sentimental weight that might have carried for Jews at the time, Bethlehem was of no strategic importance. It had no wealth, it boasted of no influence, foreign powers did not compete to control her because nobody cared about it, and nobody, not even the Jewish people, were looking for anything important to happen there. And so it only makes sense that when a group of foreign dignitaries traveled to Israel to pay homage to a new king, they would go first to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is where you would expect to find a person of importance and influence and prominence. When heads of states from other countries visit America, they do not go to Buchanan or Blue Ridge. They go to Washington. 
because Washington is the capital, and the capital is where important people live. And that's why Matthew's gospel tells us that when the Magi came to Jerusalem, they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. They came to Jerusalem expecting to find this newborn king there. And it turns out that the Magi were probably acting on more than just an assumption. These mysterious characters from the East were probably also acting upon their knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures. We aren't told much about them. We have to make some assumptions. But based on what we do read, we can surmise that they had studied Israel's Bible. They knew the prophecies that were waiting to be fulfilled. And amongst those many prophecies, perhaps one that they would have most certainly been familiar with was the one we read in Isaiah chapter 60. We read it at our Christmas Eve service. Isaiah 60 was written at a time when Israel was in a season of despair and desperation. At that particular time in history, Jerusalem had been conquered by the Babylonians and its leading citizens had been hauled off to live in exile. And it was during that season of darkness and agony that God, through the prophet Isaiah, had spoken of a day when he was going to restore Jerusalem's glory. Here's what Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 3 says. Arise! Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Now, it had been almost 800 years since Isaiah had written those words, but these magi from the east almost certainly understood themselves to be fulfilling that prophecy. They were the kings from foreign nations who were coming to see the brightness of the dawn. And where was that brightness to shine but in Jerusalem? But when the people got to Jerusalem, a strange thing happened. These magi learned that while their intentions were right and good, their travel guide was not. Because in this case, it turns out that Isaiah 60 was not the best road map for them to follow. There was another Old Testament passage, this one a little bit more obscure, that was actually a better guide. The passage they should have been following was the one that was quoted for us in today's reading from the book of Micah, a smaller, lesser-known prophet in the Old Testament. Micah 5, verse 2 says this, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And so it turns out that these magi were off by six miles. The newborn king was not born in Jerusalem as they expected him to be. He did not enter the world in the place of power and influence, but rather came into the world in Bethlehem, the place of nothing special. 
By almost any human logic, that's the last place in the world you would expect the Savior of the world to come from. No one, not Herod, not the Magi, not an entire Jewish nation that was looking for a Messiah. No one would have thought to look in Bethlehem. But Jesus' birth was reflective of God's entire way of being among us because God has a tendency to show up in out-of-the-way places. Look at the pattern Jesus' life followed. He was born in Bethlehem, which as we've already said was nothing but a wide spot in the road. Read on a little further in Matthew's Gospel, you'll see that he spent his early years as a refugee in Egypt, a homeless child on the run for his life. He grew up in Nazareth, which in those days was just a wide spot in the road, the kind of town that would have one traffic light only. He made his adult home in Capernaum, which was the ancient equivalent of a trailer park. And he launched his ministry among the count-for-nothing podunk villages around the Sea of Galilee, all of which were about as far from the center of power as you could get. And it wasn't just out-of-the-way places that defined Jesus' life and ministry. It was out-of-the-way people among whom Jesus did his best work. Jesus lived among the working-class folk of his day. He called unsophisticated fishermen as his disciples. He ate his meals with prostitutes and other sinners And he poured much of his energies into the kinds of people that the religious leaders of the day said were not worth bothering with. And in fact, this was the source of greatest conflict between Jesus and the contemporary leaders. Is that he chose to associate with the very folk that the religious elite of the day said should be rejected because they weren't worthy. Now, I don't think it's the case that Jesus has it in for people who have wealth or influence. It's simply that people who have wealth or influence tend to be pretty self-sufficient. They tend to live life as though they've pretty well got it under control. So Jesus spent his time in places and among people that were open and receptive to him. And so as a result, Jesus' life and ministry was defined by a pattern of being in places where you would least expect to find God. Several years ago, as a Christmas gift, somebody gave me a book, and that book has now been made into a movie, and I can testify that in this case the book is better than the movie. It's entitled, The Same Kind of Different as Me. Maybe some of you have seen it. It tells the true story of two men who came from very different worlds, but whose lives ended up intersecting each other in a powerful way. The first is a man named Denver Moore, who has since passed away. 
Denver grew up poorer than dirt. As a black sharecropper on a white man's farm in Louisiana in the 1930s and 40s, his life was defined by overt and oppressive racism. He never got to go to school. He never learned to read and write. And he never knew how to do anything except work the land. One day he decided he'd had enough. And so on a whim he hopped a freight train that took him to wherever it was going. And that didn't lead him to any better place. And so after more experiences of poverty and despair and a moment of desperation, he committed a crime and served a 10-year prison sentence for armed robbery. Following his release from prison, he wound up homeless on the streets of Fort Worth, Texas, where he eventually landed a bed at a place called the Union Gospel Mission, which was a homeless shelter for folk on the poor side of the tracks in Fort Worth. <clears throat> the other character in the story is a man named Ron Hall, whose life couldn't be any more different. Ron is an international art dealer, a profession that has made him extremely wealthy. And so after moving from one expensive home to another, Ron and his family eventually landed in his childhood hometown of Fort Worth, Texas. Ron's wife, Deborah, was undergoing a season of spiritual rebirth and renewal about that time. And so as a part of that experience, she insisted that the two of them begin volunteering at the Union Gospel Mission. And Ron wasn't particularly excited about this, but mostly to appease his wife, he agreed to go along. And that marked the first step in the formation of a very unlikely friendship between a rich white professional and an illiterate, hard-shelled, ex-con, black, homeless man. Now the story has a lot to commend it, and I'm not going to spoil it for you by telling you all the details, but I will say that the most compelling aspect of it all is the surprising twist of who turns out to be the spiritual giant in this story. To be sure, Ron Hall grew in his love for God and in his witness to Christ. He became gracious and compassionate, and through his generosity, he helped to lift a man out of abject poverty. But between the two of them, the one who proved himself over and over to be most in touch with what God was doing in the world, the one who had the deepest well of godly wisdom, and the one who helped to save Ron Hall's faith when his wife Deborah died of cancer was Denver Moore. The man who could not read the Bible had nevertheless been profoundly shaped by it. And God used that illiterate man to not only pull a successful business professional back from the brink of spiritual despair, but also eventually to bring about the renewal of urban ministry in a major American city. God has a way of showing up in the most unlikely places amongst the people we would never expect to see it in. Which says more about us than it does about him. 
God, you see, will not confine Himself only to the places where we think He should be. I was amused as I was taking down some Christmas decorations yesterday at the house. You've probably noticed this, but the figure of Santa Claus, a mythical creature, has gone through many transformations down throughout history. And in our house, we have several versions of him. Hanging on our Christmas tree is a UNC Chapel Hill version of Santa Claus and a Duke Blue Devil version of Santa Claus, and they compete for one another for a place of prominence on our tree. But it occurred to me, that's what we do with important figures in our life. We reshape them to make them look like us. Now that's fine when it comes to a mythical creature, but when it comes to the living God, we dare not. And yet we do it all the time. We overlay on God our expectations and our assumptions and think that this is what God must look like and this is how God must act and this is what God must desire. And all the while, we are worshiping a God who got himself born into a place like Bethlehem where you and I would dare never expect to see him. And until we come to terms with that and quit expecting God to always look like and act like what we think he should look like and act like, there is great risk we will miss him, which, oh, by the way, most of the nation of Israel did because they weren't looking for him in the right places. Today is, of course, the first Sunday of January. And there's whole new years stretching out in front of us, and it's, it's full of both possibilities and some threats and dangers. And there's two questions I want to put before us this morning as we move into the months ahead. The first is this. Do we really believe that God still wants to show himself to us? That God is still in the business of revealing himself to us? Do we think that God still has more to show us and more to teach us and more new places of service in which to lead us? Or have we already decided in our heart of hearts that we've seen it all, we've done it all, and we've heard it all, and there's nothing more to see? Do we really expect to see God revealing himself to us? One of the interesting things about the Christmas cycle of stories in the Bible is that there are two contrasting sets of characters that are drawn up into it. The first is the shepherds and the other are the magi. And in some ways, the two couldn't be different, more different from each other. The shepherds were poor, humble, despised, lowly. The magi were kingly, stately, probably wealthy, dignitaries from another nation. Couldn't be more different from one another. And yet there was one critical thing both groups had in common. Their vocation, their occupation made them people who were always looking for something. The shepherds, by training, looked for sheep. They were constantly on the watch. The Magi were astrologers, studying the heavens, always looking to see what the stars might be showing. And isn't it interesting that those are the two sets of characters that God chose to reveal himself to first, to people who by nature were trained to look at the world with an open eye, believing that there was still something important for them to see. 
Do we believe that God is still revealing Himself to us? Or have we decided that God has resigned Himself to the far reaches of heaven and left us on our own? And the second question is this. Are we open to the possibility that the God who desires to reveal Himself to us may just do it in some surprising ways and in some unexpected places? Maybe that abrasive co-worker that drives you crazy, the one you would just as soon avoid, maybe he or she is the place where God is revealing to you what it means to show grace to someone you have already decided does not deserve it. Maybe that hardship you are going through, be it financial, physical, emotional, relational, maybe that's the place where God is keeping you long enough to teach you what it means to live in a spirit of patience. Maybe that plan you made for yourself that has already begun to come unraveled is the place where God is teaching you how to reprioritize your life. Maybe that sense of boredom you have over the routine and mundane nature of your life is where God is showing you how to be faithful in the ordinary things because that very well may be the place where you have the biggest impact on the world. Or maybe, maybe it's the people you are quickest to reject and despise. I'll let you fill in the blank of what that may mean. Which category of people do you have the least compassion for, are the quickest to set aside, are the quickest to reject? Maybe those are the people God is calling you to love the most. Jesus began his life in an unexpected place, and he's given us no reason to think that he has changed his tactics. The God who got himself born into the world in an out-of-way place called Bethlehem is the God who is still revealing himself in the places where we are least likely to expect it. Just as Jesus began his life in an unlikely way, he ended it equally so. It made no sense to the people who followed him that he would bring about the salvation he offered by, of all things, dying a shameful death on a cross. As the Apostle Paul would later go on to say, the very idea of a crucified Messiah seemed like utter foolishness to the world. And yet that is exactly the reason Jesus came. Through his humble obedience, through his suffering love, revealed most fully on the cross, you and I have gained freedom from sin and death and have been restored to the fellowship with God the Father that we destroyed. And this morning as we begin our year together, we gather to remember and celebrate that great love by sharing together in the bread and the cup that has now been set apart for remembrance and thanksgiving. 
this simple and ordinary meal is a sign that God is present even in places where we would least expect to find him, even among folk such as us. So let us eat and drink and remember and give thanks. At this time, I would ask the deacons who were serving if they would come forward.